morning, everyone. It is good to be with you this morning. And I want to begin by, on behalf of Carol and our family, just expressing our profound gratitude and appreciation for the love and care and support and prayers and encouragement that we have received over the past couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you for being the body of Christ to us. Thank you for walking with us during this time. Thank you for just hanging there with us. It's, uh, Carol is still back in Belgium. She hopes to come tomorrow. She has remained for several days to try to start going through the after effects. Um, but it's been good for her to be there with family. It was good for all of us to be there. It was the first time that we had all come together as a family since 2014. Unfortunately, it's always events like this that seem to bring families together. We wish we could get together more often. But it was a, a good week. It was a hard week. It was a blessed week. It was a turbulent week. We just sang a beautiful song about almost home. And it's very poignant this morning as in recent weeks we've had many in our congregation, recent months, that have gone home. And we know that we're not far behind and so let's stay the course and be faithful, walk uprightly, encourage one another, love each other deeply, serve each other well, glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. But thank you for standing with us during this time. I want to give another word of thanks to Mark Bates. Well done. Thank you for your ministry last week and bringing us the word of God. I was joining you live from Belgium and enjoyed the service, the contributions of everyone, the participation, the joy of the Lord that was evident. So thank you. Please make sure your cell phones are turned off as we are live streaming the service so that there are no interruptions. And for those of you in Belgium that are joining us, good morning. On a plaque that is marking the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln, near Hodgenville, Kentucky, is recorded this simple conversation that took place between two townsfolk. Any, any news down at the village, Esri? Well, Squire McGlean's gone to Washington to see Madison sworn in, and old Spellman tells me that Bonaparte fellow has captured most of Spain. What's new out here, neighbors? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all, except for a new baby born of Tom Lincoln's. Nothing ever happens out here. Of course, Tom Lincoln was the father of Abraham, who would become the 16th president of the United States. And there are some events in history, whether birthdays in Hodgenville, Kentucky, or for that matter, in Bethlehem, or the spiritual rebirth of a person, in their initial stages may not create much of a splash. But those that are of lasting importance will eventually get the notice that they deserve. And I think as we think about that conversation over the birth of Abraham Lincoln, it's an appropriate story to get us ready for our study in the gospel according to Matthew this morning. You see, we're not always in the best position to really know what is going on. In our spiritual myopia, we often cannot and do not see the big picture of what God is doing. 
Oh, sometimes over distance and time, we may gain a better, better awareness, but clearly the best thing is just to take the Lord at his word, that he knows what he's doing, that he's in control, that his plan will prevail without fail, and that his kingdom will be established without end. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've had the privilege of studying together the gospel according to Matthew. We took a brief break for the Easter season, so let's review just a bit where we were before that three-week break. We've begun in Matthew 13, and Matthew 13, of course, comes after Matthew 11 and 12, where there had been two chapters full of opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And then as we get to chapter 13, we're given a series of parables that will explain the nature and the reality of the kingdom of heaven. These are not the only parables that Jesus gave in his ministry, but Matthew, under the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, groups them together in a cluster as he presents who Jesus is and what his ministry is to show the nature of the kingdom of heaven, what it is, what it's going to become, who is its king, how can one enter in. And he also showed the nature of this new covenant that Jesus has brought in by coming to earth to be the Savior. Well, in Matthew 13, you'll recall a few weeks ago, we first encountered the parable of the sower, which sought to answer the question, why were most of the Jews and the religious leaders of that day rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? And we saw that there's varied responses that go on in the human heart as they hear the word of God that is preached. Those responses run the gamut from outright rejection to complete acceptance and the obedient embracing of the word of God. And as those that have good soil upon which the seed falls, who hear the word, who receive it, who grow in it, produce a harvest, showing the impact of eternal life. From there, we saw the parable of the weeds. And we saw that there was more than one sower. Though there is the great sower, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sowing the seed of truth, there is also the enemy who is sowing the seed of error in the harvest field. And so the promise is that we need to wait until the final harvest when the true roots of each seed will be shown. There will be those who will find out who really were weeds, but who hung out with the good seed, but will be separated out in the final judgment. And this answers the question then, if the kingdom of heaven is now present, why is there still evil? Why is evil not being stamped out? And the answer is, be patient. The Lord of the harvest knows what he's doing. The Lord of the harvest will deal with all things justly one day, which requires patience on our part as he brings about his ultimate justice. And so that brings us today then to the section that we're going to consider, Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. And in this short passage, just a few verses, there's a lot of truth that has been packed in there. And Jesus gives two short parables showing the nature of the unstoppable influence of the kingdom of heaven in the lives of men and in the world. The two parables are given by Jesus intended to encourage his followers as they face opposition, as they face the enemies of his day. And we can say to a large measure it worked because it gave them strength to live for the Lord, to serve the Lord, and even to be ready to die for the Lord, which of course was the lot of many of them. The truth is that the kingdom of heaven is growing and is always growing. And even when days appear to be evil, God is still at work. His kingdom is still growing. And these parables have encouraged the church since the beginning to stay faithful, to stay truthful, 
to stay strong in the Lord. For as one commentator says, these, common, these, these two parables present a contrast between the present reality where evil exists and where men oppose and the ultimate destiny of the kingdom of heaven which will surely reign one day. Well, with that as a summary, as an introduction, as we get ready to dive into our text this morning, I invite you once again to stand as we read God's word and as we listen to it and as we prepare to study it together. We'll be reading out of Matthew 13, verses 31 to 35. And the wonderful gift that is the word of God says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us receive it for its intended blessing and benediction. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, once again, we have the immense privilege of sitting under the authority of your word, and we're thankful that we have a copy of it in our hands, on our phones, where we can look and see and hear. And it is our prayer in these moments that as you teach us through your word, we would taste and see that the Lord is good. So would you guide us this morning? Would you teach us? Would you lead us that we might encounter anew and afresh the living Christ in whose name we pray? Amen. Let me take a moment now to greet all of you that are here online joining us this morning. Thank you for setting aside some time wherever you might be, literally wherever in the world you might be, as we gather around the throne of grace as we study this word together. And I encourage you to open your copy of God's word to Matthew 13 as we study along. As you, as you follow in the sermon outline now in your bulletin, we get to our first major point, which is from small to great. From small to great. With the use of these two short parables, Jesus makes the point that the kingdom of heaven, it seems small now, but it will become big, significant, victorious. And so he begins this passage with a similar phrase. He put another parable before him saying, the kingdom of heaven is like... And this is a common expression that Jesus uses as he uses common everyday expressions to explain great and deep spiritual truths about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not afraid of using literary devices like similes and metaphors and word plays and ironies and even exaggeration as he's making his point about who he is and what the truth of God is and even using common expressions from everyday life that we might be able to grasp what it is the kingdom of heaven into which we enter by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we begin to look at this point from small to great, Jesus will take us deeper and talk about parables and wordplay. Parables and wordplay. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. The image is clear enough for us to understand 
But what's interesting is that at least in the common literature of the day, an expression along the lines of a man took and sowed was commonly used in storytelling, which would be fitting because this was an agricultural setting. And so it would be common to see people out working in the fields. And so that would be an image that they would grab as they began to explain a story. And so we see here the illustration or the idea of seed, of a sower, of a field. And that's a reference then to the true seed that is sown by the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the gospel, the one who is the Lord of life, who indeed is the embodiment of truth. And all that he sows is truth as he preaches and teaches on the kingdom of heaven. But it's that next little phrase found at the end of the paragraph on the screen behind me that has produced a great deal of angst and even curiosity on the part of those who are not disposed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That expression, it is the smallest of seeds. Over time, it, this has become proof to some that Jesus is either not God or the Bible is not the Word of God because, in fact, there are seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed. And so the claim is made that Jesus gives an untruth here, that Jesus is speaking a lie, that Jesus must not be truly God or he would have known better. I think the critic protests too much. As we've said, Jesus was fully human and engaged with human beings and human language and everyday human expressions, and he knows how to use a good literary device. Things that we all use in our everyday expressions with metaphors and similes and exaggerations. And Jesus is not immune to using those things to make his point, which is clear here. That that which seems small, almost insignificant, will become so big that it cannot be ignored. As one commentator says, the point of the parable does not depend on its botanical accuracy. Parables exaggerate for effect. That's the whole nature of parables. They're, they're used to, using language to push forward a truth. And so Jesus said it is like, and then uses a metaphor, he's not looking simply to just give a strict scientific truth. He's not taking the time to give a complete horticultural survey of all seeds and then make a final declaration. That's not his point. He's making a comparison between the beginning of something that seems so small easy to overlook, and its end results will be unmistakable and eternal. And in fact, the mustard seed was the, the smallest seed used in many gardens as people would plant of that day. It seems so small that it's insignificant. What could possibly become of it? Well, what could possibly become of it? Jesus goes on and tells us. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Speaking in a hyperbolic manner, Jesus is saying that this, this plant, which can grow 8 to 12 feet in size, begins to take on the function of a tree as branches are formed and firmness and steadiness is there for birds to actually come and find refuge, find a place of nesting. It's a symbol that Jesus is using to speak to a greater truth, this mustard seed as a symbol of the kingdom of heaven. And so if we push it just a bit further and we say this little tiny seed which grows to a great height and provides great uh, uh, comfort and shelter to birds that want to come and nest in it is a symbol of the blessings of the kingdom so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. There's a sign here of safety. There's a sign here of provision. There's a sign here of protection. There's a sign here of being kept away from the dangers that are of the world. And this sign or this symbol or this expression of birds resting in nests 
is actually used a few times in the prophets to talk about the impact that kingdoms will have as they grow and as people are enfolded and find their nests, they're resting in the nest of that kingdom. Now, in the immediate context of Daniel 4 and Ezekiel 31, it's talking about human kingdoms. But the illustration is still used that these kingdoms would grow and become, as it were, these trees into which people would come and nest as birds nest in the branches of trees. Well, if that's true, then, as human kingdoms grow and enfold people in with protection and provision, how much more the kingdom of heaven, where the word of God is sown, the word of God is preached, the truth takes root in people's lives, and it gives them assurance that will endure forever, protection from sin, protection from the devil, protection from opposition, protection from judgment, because as we sung this morning, if we're in Christ, judgment is past. The judgment has fallen on Christ. My friends, if you're not in Christ this morning, if you're wandering still through this world and you're looking for a place of rest and comfort, I bid you come to Christ. He holds out his hand to you and says, come and find in me the rest that your soul needs, the forgiveness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Come and cling to me. I am the door that leads to eternal life. But thirdly, then, this kingdom grows outwardly. The Jews in the time of Jesus, they expected the kingdom of heaven to come with a flash, a crash, a bang. It would come in, and the king would be there and kill all the enemies and rule, and they would be lifted up. They weren't expecting the type of kingdom that Jesus brought in. They weren't expecting the, the way that Jesus brought it in with humility and loneliness and spirit and modesty and quietness. He went about his messianic work and he told his disciples, look, it may look small now. It may be opposed by many now, but just wait till you see the end results. They will be glorious. And so let's think of the beginning then of the story of Jesus, the beginning, as it were, of the kingdom of heaven as he came and how it began in obscurity. Jesus was born in obscurity, lying in an animal feeding trough in an outback village, in a small region, on the edges of the Roman Empire. And while he was still very young, just a few months old, he and his family are forced to flee to Egypt to escape persecution and harm. And as he grows up in obscurity and eventually moves into manhood, it's at that time that he starts a public ministry in the wilderness. And even after a few years, his, his disciples are still only just a handful of followers who are going after him and hearing his truth. And great opposition is all around and growing. And he's already promised his followers what awaits them if they remain faithful to him. He's told them, what awaits you is punishment. What awaits you is beatings. What awaits you is imprisonment. What awaits you is being put to death. The very things that Jesus himself would go through to pay the price to purchase a people for God. And yet these disciples, they preached, they obeyed, they made disciples of others, they quietly served, they did what they were supposed to do. Many of them paid the ultimate price with their own lives. It started in obscurity, but now look what history has brought about. Look at how the church has grown over 2,000 years into something that is larger than what could have ever been imagined at the beginning to the point where approximately 35% of the world today claims at least some allegiance to Jesus Christ, at least in name. 
over two and a half billion people might begin small. It might be obscure, but it will grow. It will grow outwardly. And we have here then a living illustration of what God predicted through the prophet Zechariah when he said, do not despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. And here in Christ, we have this even greater fulfillment of something that begins very small with a baby in a manger in a small town of little renown. And look at how it has grown from this mustard seed because the greater king has come. The greater kingdom is present. And if the Lord is in it, it will grow even if it is small at the beginning. And so while we rejoice in how the kingdom is growing, we rejoice how the impact is, is going forward and the church is flourishing in many areas and the gospel is being preached in more ways and more places than ever before, my friends, the work is not yet done. For there still remains almost 40% of the world that is still without a clear gospel witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Three and a half billion people still languishing in spiritual darkness who need to hear about a Savior who redeems, who liberates, who forgives, who saves, who set free. And so that command that Jesus gave at the end of his earthly ministry is still there for the church to take the gospel to the whole world so that it's proclaimed everywhere. So that all have an opportunity to hear and to repent and believe. So we rejoice and yet we keep our sleeves rolled up and our boots on because there's work that's still to be done. But from this small beginning, this mustard seed, it will grow and become a kingdom that will be universal and global and eternal. And we have the promise. We sang it in a beautiful song last week. That Jesus is going to be saving people and there are people that will be coming from every nation and language and tribe and family and corner and niche and area and region and country and they will gather around the throne of God and worship him forever and he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. His will be a great kingdom indeed. But just as that mustard seed has the appearance of being not much at all, but grows and has an impact that far surpasses what the expectations could be at that time. So it is with the kingdom of heaven. If the Lord has started the work, and he has, then the end results will be great, and they will, whatever the outward appearance is at the moment. The kingdom starts small, but it will be great. The second major point, then, as we look at these parables this morning, is from the inside out from the inside out. The text continues. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, oftentimes in the scriptures, leaven is used in a negative sense, a negative influence. And of course, that can mean that in certain contexts. But here it is a positive. Here it has a positive connotation that the kingdom of God is going to have a leavening, a positive influencing effect we of course know what leaven is it's not used as much in our day as it was in days gone by you keep a little batch back from a, a bunch of dough and you set it aside to use next time and that becomes the leaven then that is used to leaven the new batch of dough and of bread that is to be made and we're told here that a woman takes the leaven and divides it into three measures 
until the whole batch is leavened. And, and this must have been the common biblical pattern of how they did it in the three measures because it shows up several times in Scripture where as women are making bread, they make three measures and they put the leaven in. must have been a common way they did it. But the amount of flour that this would take is around 50 pounds. And it would feed about 150 people. Now, if you think about the, gen the way they lived back then in multi-generations sharing the same space, the same villages, they would eat their common meals together, bread would be eaten more than once a day, there would be a need to produce a lot of bread, which was the main staple of their diet. The, the, but the illustration itself is simple enough to understand. But are there some implications we can draw from it? Now, Jesus picks illustrations that people will look at and say, I get it. I get what, what we're supposed to understand from it if they have eyes to see and I think the first thing is that kingdom living is daily. What was more daily for a woman in the life of Jesus than the kneading of bread? And in this context where Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven and the gospel should influence the regular and daily events of our days and our lives. It should be something that we're tapping into every day. It should be something that's influencing our thoughts our ideas, our attitudes, our behaviors, our interactions, our, our plans. The gospel changes us so that the old self, which was bent towards selfishness and destruction and sin and judgment, is being moved aside more and more so that the new self in Christ is being renewed and showing the impact of kingdom living. And that is a daily thing. Jesus bids us come and follow him. That is a relationship that we enter into, and we follow him. And so as we follow him, my friends, invite him into everything you do every day. If the Lord gives you life today, wake up and say, Lord, this is a gift from you. Walk with me today. Empower me to walk with you. Oh, here's my schedule for the day, Lord. I have this meeting, and I have this plan, and I have this errand, and I have this. Father, by your Spirit, go with me. Walk with me, teach me, guide me, be my companion throughout the day, and teach me to obey you and your holy word all throughout the day. Kingdom living is daily. It's ongoing. It's constant. We're in a living relationship with a living God that will endure forever. Secondly, the kingdom grows inwardly. And notice the words that are used in the text here. It's like a woman that took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Oh, you may not see the leaven as it's being worked into the dough. It's not seen, but its influence begins to be seen as it begins to leaven the whole clump of dough so that it rises and is ready for baking. It might be that the gospel starts out as insignificant, whether in a village of Bethlehem or in someone's life, but it will grow. And just as that leaven is hidden in the dough, and the secrets of heaven are hidden except to those who have eyes to see them. But God is revealing those secrets and that the effects of the kingdom of heaven hidden in our hearts by faith will begin to grow and flourish and show themselves and grow from the inside out with a new heart, with a new orientation, with a new way of thinking, with a new understanding, with a new life that's in Christ. So that kingdom living affects everything. This leaven starts out in the middle of the dough and grows in its influence, and it's the same with the gospel. The gospel takes root in a person's life and grows in its influence. And over time, 
we begin to see that our thinking is changing, that our attitudes are changing, that our passions are changing, that our plans and priorities are changing because there's now a new power that is animating and controlling our lives. We should become people that are gospel-saturated. So the question I have this morning is, is that your life? Are you gospel-saturated? Where it affects your thinking, it affects all aspects of your being. Are the effects of the gospel becoming more evident in your life? And see, God works His Word in our lives, and there is growth. And so over the course of our life, there should be patterns of growth. I'm not talking rocket growth. I'm not talking where it's, it's just going to be constantly going up in an upward manner. But there should be a pattern of growth where we're no longer the same. We're no longer what we do, were. Because kingdom living affects everything that we do. And then as kingdom living begins to affect us as individuals, it spills over into the lives of others. And as more and more people hear about the kingdom of heaven, their collective influence begins to grow, and it has a healing effect, a restorative effect, a reconciling effect. And think of the early church. This initial group of disciples, transformed by the gospel, began to preach that gospel, began to live out the kingdom of heaven living. And very soon the church began to grow. 3,000 and then 5,000 and then it moved across the, the mighty Roman Empire at such speed that its enemies were alarmed. Listen to the testimonies of some of the enemies of the gospel. Acts chapter 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. There's alarm at the impact that the gospel has in the saints. They're trying to change our way of living. They're trying to get us to conform to this way of God. And there was persecution that would come as a result. Does that not sound familiar in our day? All oh, those Christians. Well, I'm here to say, Christians, keep on keeping on. We have the influence of the kingdom of heaven that alone gives life and restoration and heals people from their brokenness and sin and sickness. Keep on keeping on in the midst of opposition. But we have the promise. Kingdom living affects everything. And there are dark days. There are difficult days. There are challenging days. And so we fix our eyes on the Word of God, which says we win. More importantly, He wins. And we happen to be in the victory parade. And sometimes it's good for us to be reminded we're almost home as we've just sung. But when we get home, we'll see in a clearer way what is already true and is just going to come to pass in space and time, and that is that the kingdom of heaven will win. So let's just look forward to what the throngs of heaven are already saying is given in the word of God. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. This will happen because God has promised it. And the mighty beginning of the mustard seed, or the small beginning of the mustard seed, becomes the mighty kingdom that will rule forever. Revelation 7. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The throngs of heaven are already singing about the victory that is to come, and it's surely going to come. So stand firm. And yet, even as we face the trials and challenges of this day, the kingdom of heaven is growing in its influence. I want to recommend a book to you this morning. Because we have seen the impact of what Jesus has promised here in Matthew 13 in the history of mankind and the history of the church. The kingdom of heaven has been influencing and changing human history. The late D. James Kennedy was a great preacher and teacher, an apologist and defender of the truth. And he wrote a book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And he gives a detailed report of the gospel as it penetrated the cultures and kingdoms of men over the last 2,000 years. And covering 12 major areas of life, such as education, science, medicine, children and family, the status of women, arts and literature, Dr. Kennedy shows the difference that the gospel has made wherever it has gone, including improving the lot of people's lives in literacy and education and medicine and the advancement of business practices and setting people free from slavery and liberating people from caste systems. Now, to be sure, some bad things have been done in the name of Christianity. But in so many ways, it is the gospel that has brought good and liberty and freedom and hope and victory over oppression and evil. And no other system has ever come close. It is the gospel that has brought good to the world. It is the gospel that overcomes sin and oppression. It is the gospel that sets the captive free and gives dignity to men, women, and children. And my friends, we cannot even imagine modern life without 2,000 years of gospel impact. And towards the end of the 1800s, James Russell Lowell, Lowell, who was a poet, a writer, and an American diplomat to England, began to deal with what were called the higher critics of his days, those that were beginning to call into question the impact of the gospel, the impact of Christian missionaries. And he said this, I challenge any skeptic to find a 10-square-mile spot on this planet where they can live in peace and safety and decency, where womanhood is honored, where infancy and old age are revered, where they can educate their children and follow the freedoms of their conscience, where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not gone first to proclaim the way, to prepare the way. And my friends, we have been so blessed to have grown up in such a situation where the gospel has had an impact, it's difficult for us to even step outside of what that world would look like. But Jesus said, just as a mustard seed, just as a little bit of leaven, so the kingdom of heaven will grow and have an impact. And so, my friends, while we enjoy the fruit of the gospel, let us work hard to never cut ourselves off from the root of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is growing from small to great. It is changing people from the inside out. It is transforming lives. And so, friends, let us never be ashamed of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our third major point this morning as we try to wrap up. Hidden and fulfilled. Hidden and fulfilled. 
All of these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Not the first time Jesus is going to give us a reason for parables. He's already done that earlier in chapter 13. And in this particular context, all of these things refers to this context where he is speaking to this crowd in parables. Because we know Jesus didn't speak just in parables. He gave large teaching and preaching sections like the Sermon on the Mount. But let's review, because we've seen it a couple of times now. It's been a few weeks. What's the use of parables? We're just going to go through this quickly. You recall from our study earlier in chapter 13, parables are used to reveal and to hide. To reveal some things of God and to hide them from others as God is moving and working his plan. Secondly, they're to bless and to take away. To the one who has, has eyes to see and ears to hear, even more will be given. But to the one who has little, even what little he has, will be taken away. And thirdly, then, they're to, they're to confirm hardened hearts. As people hear the parables and turn away, they simply affirm who they really are and whose they really are. So let's move on to the next point of parables and prophecy. Parables and prophecy. This, speaking in parables was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, I will open my mouth in parables. Jesus knows who he is. He knows why he came. He knows what he came to do. He knows that he is the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. It's a major part of his ministry. So we should not be surprised that intentionally everything that he does is to fulfill part of the plan of God, the, the law and the prophets, including the use of parables. And Matthew takes great care that we recognize that that is what he has been doing. The quotation here is from Psalm 78. Now, mainly we would consider the Psalms being poetry. And indeed they are. But they're more than just poetry. Many of them take on a prophetic nature as they predict the sufferings and the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, as they predict his coming kingship. Some of them are just lamentations of prayer, of what is happening within God's people, within their hearts as they go through the traumas of this life. But when we think of the fact that all the scriptures are given by God to train and to encourage and to instruct us, we should not be surprised then that Jesus would be the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. Now to be sure, Psalm 78 does not clearly promise the Messiah. But it does point to a type of teaching that the Messiah will use to great effect. Parables. And so you remember when we first started on parables a number of weeks ago, parabole, the word in Greek, <clears throat> is a riddle or a wordplay or an ir irony or a proverb or something like that. It's a literary device. And Psalm 78 proves to be a great grid through which to interpret what is happening in the life of Jesus in his day. You see, the author of Psalm 78 was Asaph, who was a songwriter, hymn writer, but he's also referred to at least twice as a prophet in one way or another. And in Psalm 78, Asaph is showing and recounting the history of Israel and how God has been working and through and among his people and preserving them even though they have not always been very faithful to him, showing a great lack of understanding of what God is doing. And so Israel was often a rebel. Israel was often disobedient. But Psalm 78 reminds that God never stopped loving his people, being patient, the redeemer, the rock, the righteous one. And in Psalm 78, there is a promise that David would be the shepherd to his people as a reminder that God is the keeper of covenants. 
Well, all of that provides a perfect grid then to understand what is happening here where Jesus now is the ultimate son of David, the ultimate king, bringing in the ultimate kingdom is showing that God is staying faithful to his people even as they continue to resist. Asaph, through the use of Psalm 78, is revealing the secrets of what God was doing then among his people, though they did not understand. And Jesus now is revealing the secrets of the kingdom among some of the same people who don't understand, but to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, it is the most wondrous news they've ever heard. Indeed, God is keeping his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. The kingdom has come. And so now we see that what is hidden is now revealed. I will utter what is hidden since the foundation of the world. An interesting turn of a phrase. It's one that we hear often in the scriptures of how God was at work long before there was space and time, if we can call God working. He knew what his plan was going to be. It was already planned and it was just to be ready to set in motion in space and time. And those then who can see it and those who can hear it delight that these truths have been made clear. The problem is that the people of Jesus' day did not listen. You see, they followed the example of the people of Psalm 78 who did not listen. And the people of Jesus' day did not listen. And Jesus is saying, listen, you who have ears to hear, listen to what is being revealed. There's a warning here. I will speak in parables. There's a warning. If we're not in Christ, we won't get the parables. And our hearts will become hardened. But if we're in Christ, we'll be able to un unveil the mystery as it's being revealed to us and we'll delight in it because this is what God has been doing. The plan of God, hidden since the foundation of the world, that God progressively over time, from prophet after prophet and age after age, revealed it to his people. And they all pointed to the one who was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now the fulfillment of and the fullness of the plan of God. Parables are used to reveal those who have good soil to receive the word, good eyes to see the truth, good ears to hear and apply the truth. Is that your condition today? You may say, oh, Pastor, I, I've struggled this week. I don't think I've listened as well as I should have. I haven't seen as well as I should have. And let me ask you another question. Do you desire the truth of God? Is your heart still aflame? Does it still desire to hear? You see, I'm worried if you say I don't. That's why we had a prayer of repentance this morning, because all of us need to continually turn away from ourselves and turn to God and say, oh God, give me ears to hear. And what the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18, as we approach this word, we say, open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things of your law. If you find your heart getting a little cold this morning, disinterested, say, God, warm my heart. Open my eyes. Open my ears. I want to know the truth. And we need to be reminded of this on an ongoing basis. Because as we look at these parables, they're a reminder to us that we need to stand firm in the truth. We need to know the truth love the truth, live the truth, preach the truth, stand firm in the truth, and not swerve from it, whether it is followed by many or by few. 
And there are all kinds of examples in the history of the church where there are many that embraced the gospel and others where many did not. But my friends, the gospel is not more true if Jesus is popular and Christians are in charge. Nor is it any less true if Christians are being persecuted and the church does not seem to be growing. The gospel is true and will endure. And that which started small will grow. And it will overtake the world one day. See, the question is not whether we're on the right side of history. The question is, are we on the right side of eternity? Are we connected to the truth? And Jesus is not just a means that we use to accomplish our ends. He is not bound to any political party or cause or flag or country or anything else. He is the end. He is the fulfillment. He is the goal. His symbol is the cross. And he's building a kingdom of those that come and join him that will lead to great glory one day as we see the victory of the final harvest. Because we know that there will be a great harvest one day. Now next week we're going to take a look at another series of parables that are found in Matthew 13. But what are some lessons we can take from today? to help us stand firm in this week to come. Since the kingdom of heaven will surely come, and I would say since it has come and will surely come, we will not lose heart, even if the kingdoms of men seem strong. Because we know who is the king and the final outcome. Since the gospel is to permeate all areas of our lives, we will examine ourselves daily, and by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, remove obstacles to spiritual growth. Keep on keeping on. Keep on growing. Keep on living. As long as we have breath, let us keep going on to spiritual maturity. Thirdly, since the gospel is to permeate all areas of the world, we will proclaim the truth in all areas of influence we have in our lives. You are placed in the place that you are in to influence people for the kingdom of heaven. Be a good ambassador. You're already called to be one. Be a good one as God enables you and as you humble yourself before him. Fourthly, since Jesus fulfills the scriptures, we will look to find him in all of its parts. I love how Jesus, uh, Matthew, just in a simple way, this was to fulfill the prophets, and then moves on. We should expect to see signs and needs and symbols of our Lord Jesus Christ all throughout his holy word. And lastly, since the truth has been revealed to us, We will not hide it from others, neither in our words nor in our actions. We want our walking and our talking to be in harmony with one another as we live out the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Father, we know it was your kindness that led us to repentance. And it's your kindness that keeps us. And so, Father, we lean in and lean upon that kindness this morning. And we thank you that we, by your grace, have entered the kingdom of heaven that will endure forever. And our future is not in doubt, nor is our ultimate destiny. So, Father, help us in our spiritual myopia to see more clearly what it is that you are doing, how you are leading us towards the goal that we have in Christ. And then this week, Father, 
enable us and encourage us to make steps of progress and obedience and maturity for your glory. We commit ourselves to you, Father, for we have nowhere else to go, but we know that you will lead us. For Jesus' sake.